Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We have a new month coming up. It's May. That's what's coming up. I'm Don Stradley. This is Dana Hersey. We're the film detective. America's favorite streaming platform. In May, we're gonna be celebrating a couple of birthdays. Let me uh, look it up. I think it's May 26th is uh, John Wayne. Yep. And the day after is Vincent Price. Can you imagine character. two more different characters being born so close together? Yeah, very different men too. Yeah, very different kinds of men too, actually. But um, the Duke. I mean, my dad named my dog Duke, you know, really? because yeah, his original name was Pronto. He's about a twenty-eight pound rescue dog. You know, he's cute as hell. He's a great dog. And uh, but when he was a puppy, he was only about this big. He'd just been weaned, and we were up at the island, and I was swimming in the island. My wife brought him to the beach. And just a little bit, was a little that big, you know. And we had named him Pronto because he came to us very quickly. But my wife got to the water's edge and he jumped out of her arms and started swimming toward me. Only when he was about this far, I said, you're not a Pronto, you're a Duke. <laughs> you, know? you know, Duke, was he picked that name for himself? Did he? John Wayne, actually, nobody gave that name to John Wayne. John Wayne picked it himself because, of course, his first name, his real name was Marion. Right. And, you know, in fact, uh, somebody asked him one time whether or not he fought as a kid. And he turned to them and he said, my name is Marion Morrison. You think I fought as a kid? Yeah, I fought as a kid. So he had to defend himself all the time. But he, he hated that name. And so when he was a very young kid, he took the name Duke. And it was actually the name of the family dog. And the family actually would call him Little Duke, would call the dog Big Duke, and would call him Little Duke. And it stuck for his entire career, because he used to tell people to call him the Duke. I mean, some of the people always think that that was put on him by the press, or put on him by somebody who worked with him. But he actually picked that when he was a small kid, because he didn't like his own an amazing individual, actually. I mean, he really was. I mean, there are very few actors that you could name that have reached that kind of iconic status. And I know today there's a lot of criticism of John Wayne because of you know his conservatism, but you know something, he was a giant movie star. He was a movie star of a caliber that very few actors have ever achieved. He starred in 142 movies. 
that's a record that probably will stand forever. I know Bruce Willis, until he had his medical problem, was headed that way. But <laughs> John Wayne starred in 142 movies as the star of the movie. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's interesting about John Wayne, too. And there were some other actors you could certainly say this about was, you know, I, I, I believe he started really in silent films. He was an extra in a handful of silent films. And he really followed the entire history of movie making from sound films, then from black and white into color films. Uh, and then by the 60s, he was appearing in all of those big, you know, sense around type films that were being sold right. to the public, you know, and, and um, uh, then he did a little more, television. Yeah. Yeah. They, the movies became increasingly more violent. And, and he was certainly involved in some of that, you know, uh, guns, gunplay started to look more realistic by his later films. Um, and uh, he really did run the gamut from the early days of movies to uh, the 70s. Um, right. And uh, from John Ford all the way up to, you know, working with, in his last film, Ron Howard was uh, the kid in, in The right. Shootist. Right. My that favorite John Wayne story, my favorite John Wayne story was when he was making Stagecoach. And he'd already been in the business a while. He'd been in a lot of, uh, you know, the small studio pictures. Um, and when he went into the production of Stagecoach, he started giving John Ford advice uh, as far as setting up a shot. He, yeah. he would say, well, you know, when we were shooting at Monogram, we would do it this way. And right. John Ford was looking at him. And so John Ford, uh, I think he may have had one of the old megaphones that directors used. And he said, hey, everybody, uh, apparently John Wayne uh, thinks he knows everything. And he thinks we're a bunch of idiots. So I'm going to let him direct the picture. And from then on, John Wayne just kind of backed off. Yeah. Didn't say another and word. They became great great friends, of course. And yeah, they did and they become, became great, great friends, friends. and a great, great uh, team. Yeah, it's always... amazing when you consider that man never really intended to become an actor. I mean, he literally are one of those actors, successful actors that that fell into the motion pictures. I mean, he went to school at USC on a football scholarship, and he literally got he got injured body surfing you know as all the kids out there they go they spend a lot of time in the ocean and you know they, they, the big hit out there was body surfing the big thing that everybody did and he hurt his shoulder as a result of that he couldn't play football anymore and so they took his football scholarship away and he could no longer afford to stay at usc so he dropped out of usc and one of his old football coaches got him a job at warner brothers as a prop guy just one of these, you know, which is a big deal in those days because, you know, like it is today, it's very hard to get in to the movie business. But this football coach knew somebody and said, this kid needs a break. And, you know, he was a good looking guy. He was six foot three, you know, and they, they put him on board. And eventually somebody decided you belong in front of the camera, not behind the camera. But, you know, for a guy that starred in 142 pictures, that's a pretty amazing beginning. Well, he certainly looked the part. That was something you could never take away from him. He, he looked the part, you know. In fact, he was so good at those kind of big outdoorsy characters 
that I never fully believed him when he was in modern dress, like in some of his later movies, he'd be wearing a yeah. suit and a, and a fedora and, and no, he belongs outdoors, you know, he, he's, he's a horseman, you know, he doesn't belong in, a, in an office or a, a cop car or something. Well, he's certainly known for his cowboy films. Uh, he turned down a lot of roles because he didn't like the way the role was heading. I think he turned down High Noon, in fact. Yeah. Uh, they wanted him to be in High Noon. That's but true. He didn't like he didn't like the way what the story he felt the story was too un-American. Right. It's hard to believe that that story is un-American, but that's the way he felt anyway. And the only role that I know of that he wanted and he never got was Dirty Harry that he literally wanted Dirty Harry, but he was 62 years old hmm. and they thought he was too old to do it. And they gave it to Clint Eastwood and the rest is history, uh, as they say. I also heard that Sinatra was considered for Dirty Harry and Elvis. <laughs> uh, Elvis, I had not heard. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Elvis for Dirty Harry? Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see that actually. Well, I, you know. I, I think Elvis uh, owned a 44 Magnum. I think that was... <laughs> That was the reason. Right. Um, Maybe. But, uh, you know, Elvis still had uh, a lot of clout. Um, but I think, he, I think he had already stopped making movies and he was already back in Las Vegas performing on stage. Uh, but, yeah, I heard, I heard Elvis. I heard Sinatra. I heard John Wayne. Um, so Clint wasn't the first one in line. But uh, No, that's for sure. But uh, I think it's interesting that a guy with the kind of clout that John Wayne had they thought he was too old for the role and never gave him the role. That's the only one that he, I know that he wanted that nobody ever gave him. Because he turned down a lot of roles that became uh, quite famous roles. One of my favorite stories about John Wayne is the story that's going around now that he used to tell, actually, to his friends. He had a very small circle of friends, but he used to tell this story. And apparently the story is now well-documented and that he survived not one, but two assassination attempts from the KGB because Joseph Stalin had fingered him as a this rampant anti-communist and he wanted to do away with him. And you know, a lot of people say that that's, you know, that's baloney. But apparently Nikita Khrushchev actually confirmed that story and said that he was the one that, that pulled the death assassination attempt, you know, the, the death warrant on uh, John Wayne. I thought that was incredible. And how exactly he, avoided those assassination attempts is a little vague, but nevertheless, it's, it's an interesting story. <laughs> Did his politics ever come into conversation with you and your, your movie going pals back in the day when uh, he was becoming such a right wing figurehead? No, I think a lot of people give him a break now. I mean, I think most people do, you know, yeah. give him a break. But, you know, as you know, there's been a recent attempt to cancel him, you know, right. if the guy's been dead now for 30 years and they want to cancel him. I don't really understand that. But uh, over 30, I guess, 1979. Yeah. Died. So, um, yeah. And you got to give the guy a lot of credit for just survivability, too. He had lung cancer. He took out most of one of his lungs. Uh, he went right back to work. He was at work two months later. And uh, actually, there was a, I think it was Henry Hathaway that he was working with, and he had, had had cancer as well. And Hathaway didn't baby him. And he always said, that's the reason I think that I continued making movies is because this director had cancer as well. And he made me do all the same things he would have done if I hadn't just had a lump removed 
He said, so I kept on making uh, motion pictures and tough motion pictures, pictures that were physically difficult to do. And, uh, and then of course I got stomach cancer and then it was another. My, the closest I ever really came to John Wayne um, because he did die in 1979 was I was on his boat once. I was on his, it's called a wild goose and it's still out there. It was, a, it was a minesweeper in World War II, and he had converted it into a yacht. And I interviewed, believe it or not, I interviewed Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau on that boat when it was in, uh, it wasn't Santa Monica, but it was in uh, Newport Beach, I think. And it was, uh, it was a kick, actually, to be in there. They showed you the card room. And they showed, you know, he was a big chess guy. He loved playing chess, and he was actually very good at it. And uh, there was a screenwriter that was a good friend of his said that he, he played chess with him for 20 years and never won a game. So he was very good at that, actually. So he was a lot deeper than a lot of people thought he was. Yeah, I was always surprised when, uh, you know, of course, when I was a kid and uh, watching his movies, uh, you know, I, I just sort of took them for granted. Uh, but then as I got a little older, uh, and I was always surprised when I met people who didn't like him because of his politics. I was, right. I was naive and I thought, well, he's, he's a guy on TV, you know, what difference does it make? Right. You know, that was, that was my way of looking at it. But a lot of people took it very seriously. And, and, you know, well, you gotta, I mean, he eulogized Nixon. Yeah. He gave Nixon's eulogy. He, uh, he was a big fan of Ronald Reagan's. Uh, and he was involved in Ronald Reagan's campaign. So a lot of people that you know, don't happen to be Republicans and conservatives, you know, they don't like the guy for that reason. But if you just were to judge the guy on, you know, how honest and American he was and, uh, and for his acting and his movies, I should say, I mean, there's nobody better. I mean, it's just, he really was an American. Do you have a favorite John Wayne movie? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I think The Quiet Man is, I think, the best film that he ever made. Yeah, he liked that movie as well himself, but it was that was not his favorite movie. He loved Stagecoach because it was the movie that propelled him uh, his career. Um, but he also, I mean, he used to say this all the time. He used to say Hatari was like his favorite movie, and that is a movie that was not critically well received at all. But I think it had a lot to do with the fact that he spent three or four months literally on safari in order to make that movie. And it, uh, I don't know, he just liked uh, being out there, I guess. It has a great soundtrack. It, it's yes, it Henry does. Henry Mancini soundtrack. Yeah, it's a it beautiful album if you ever, uh, yeah. if you ever like soundtracks. But you know what I mean? It, it is not a movie that critics actually liked at all when it came out. I'm not even so sure it was a very successful movie. I might be wrong about that, but I, as I remember, it was not that successful. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was one of his uh, blockbusters. My, my favorite is uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That's a good movie. Yeah, I, I really movie. like that one. I, I think he's a, little, he's a little different in that one, uh, a little, little, uh, little more grizzled, a little more problematic, kind of an uh, interesting character. And it's a great story, too. Um, it's one of my uh, To Watch Again films. I have a number of these movies that To Watch Again, they're all on my list. And that's yeah, all. and and it's funny how some of them get better uh, as time goes on. That, that's that's and uh, some of them don't. <laughs> know, so, some of them do not. Yeah, some of them don't. No. Yeah, yeah. Some of them some of them are best left in the past. 
but uh, right. Liberty Valance, uh, I watch that every every few years just to refresh yeah. it, and it, it always uh, it always holds up. Now, Vincent Price, born the next day, and we're going to be showing uh, a bunch of uh, well, for John Wayne, we'll probably be showing Angel and the Bad Man, which was a great yeah. one, uh, one that he produced, by the way. Um, and also uh, probably McClintic, and maybe some of the older, some of the older titles we have. We have a bunch of those old Lone Star westerns that he did prior to uh, Stagecoach. Those For Vincent films. Price, yeah. we're going to show House on Haunted Hill. Yep. The Bat, which is a great one. Agnes Moorhead is in that one. And uh, I what that. I think is one of Vincent Price's best movies, The Last Man on Earth. Um, which was based on an old Richard Matheson novel that has been made a bunch of times as a movie. It seemed like every 10 years, someone would try to make it. It was done as the Omega Man at one point with uh, wow. Charlton Heston. Um, but The Last Man on Earth with, with Vincent Price, um, that, I think that was the first time that this novel was made into a film. You know, Vincent Price, as different as he is from John Wayne, he, he's almost the, uh, the anti-John Wayne. Um, as I was thinking about them today, getting ready to talk to you, I was thinking they did have something in common, Wayne and, and Vincent Price, in that neither one of them played modern roles. They were almost always playing roles from the past, you know, I mean, John Wayne did some World War II movies and whatnot. That was about as close to uh, the modern era yeah. as he got. Um, but uh, Vincent Price was always in some kind of a costume, always in a castle somewhere. He know. had an explanation for that, you know. He said, because when we came up, and again, it was on the peripheral of the silent era as mm -hmm. it was coming up, that we were theater actors, that we were trained as theater actors. And so we were trained to project. I mean, it was all about the voice and it was all about, and that's why so few theater actors actually transitioned into the talkies because they didn't have a powerful enough voice or their voice didn't match the character uh, characters that they played. Yet he said, when you came up like that and then suddenly you're thrust into the late fifties and the early sixties of uh, making movies. And suddenly there's this Stanislavski method. Suddenly there are method actors like, you know, Marlon Brando coming out, you know, like James Dean coming out. And as he put it, and you know, they're, they're kind of mumbling all over the place and they're, you know, they're doing this and that. He said, actors that could project and actors who had, like himself, that had kind of perfect enunciation and were very articulate. And all that, those actors were relegated, he said, specifically to costume dramas, he said. A yeah. lot of us had to do things in costume as a result of that either, you know, classic kinds of filmmaking or, you know, or these costumed characters. And that's exactly how he got to be actually this, uh, you know, the horror master uh, that he actually became or accepted so many of these roles. He had a great line about villains too. I, I'll never forget. He said that villains are far more sympathetic than heroes are in a black, white, you know, evil versus, um, versus good movie. And if you think about it, it's true, because he said the villain was always a guy who had been wronged, and there was a reason why. I mean, he was bullied as a kid, or he was, you know, orphaned, had a terrible upbringing, 
or he was, you know, he was in one way or another abused or he had some deformity or something. So there was a, something about him that people actually could identify with and could sympathize with. He said, well, the hero was normally a good looking guy who kind of had everything, you know, got, got went through life without, you know, he was far less sympathetic than a villain. And I had never thought about that until I heard him say that. And that's exactly true when you think about it. Well, I, I remember a lot of those villains that, that he played and, and also Boris Karloff and, and people, actors of that nature. At the end, when, when they were destroyed, they always sort of went up in flames and it was agony and it was really kind of tragic <laughs> to see them, you know. <laughs> Right. They're death throes. You know, I, I always felt bad for the, for the monster when, when he burned up at the end of Frankenstein. Right. You know. Frankenstein, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he, he and Karloff were actually very good friends. I mean, they were very, very good friends. And he said the thing that people don't know about Boris Karloff is he was a very funny man. And that the two of them would empty restaurants out, he said, because we would just be howling at these restaurants you know, talking about life and telling jokes back and forth. He said he was a very funny guy. And that is something you don't really think about when you think of Boris Karloff. But the two of them, two of the master villains of film, you know, having a good time, yucking it up in the, some restaurant and, uh, you know, making people leave because they're being too noisy. That's pretty funny. <laughs> they were too rowdy. <laughs> too rowdy. It was yeah. a funny story about uh, Vincent Price. Um, this was long after Karloff had died. Uh, and this, this woman approached Vincent Price uh, out in public somewhere and said, oh, Mr. Karloff, I, I, I've always been a fan of yours and I, I would love your autograph. So rather than tell this woman, hey, I'm Vincent Price, he just signed her autograph book, Boris Karloff. And, 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 and Boris had been dead for a few years already. So he always wondered if that woman said, hey, I got Boris Karloff's autograph today. <laughs> and well, you know, it's funny. Say, he died, Maud, or, you know. Yeah. Um, well, you he was know, also good friends with uh, Christopher Lee. I think all of those guys yeah. were, you know, they, they were all actually, worked together. Yeah. They all, they he all used to show up at these wax museums. They used to do these bits at wax museums at like Madame Trousseau's or something. And they would, you know, they'd take the wax uh, dummies of them off and they put these guys in some pose you know and then when people walk by they would have a knife and they would like you know move and he just had the best time doing kind of thing and he and those two actually used to do that just for fun you know oh yeah. it's funny about autographs too that vincent price is one of those guys there's a story about him that helen hayes when he first started in the movies helen hayes took him aside and said look you're not an actor unless you have fans and you're, you, this is a public servant job. You're going to have to remember that although it's a pain in the neck, that these people are your audience and you will never be a star. You'll never work a lot unless you're good to those people. And he, as a result, took that to heart. And he never, never turned down an auto. His, uh, his daughter, in fact, was talking one time about how, you know, she used to go out with him all the time. And of course, he would just be inundated with these people who wanted his autograph. And she said, I don't think he ever had a hot meal that he would sit down at a restaurant. People would recognize him. And then they started lining up for his autograph. And he said he never said, let me finish my meal. He never said uh, he was always not only signing autographs, but asking you know, where they were from 
you know, how many kids they had. I mean, he was a very engaging, a wonderful man. And if you ever see any tape of him now on any of these shows, like the Carson show, he's incredibly personable. Uh, he's a very nice man. And it's funny, it's that juxtaposition between this villain that he used to play all the time and a man who is genuinely a very nice uh, and a very erudite man as well. You know how much uh, he had, he's an art collector. I mean, he collected, oh, yeah. uh, he wrote books about art. He wrote, uh, he wrote one of the most definitive books about American art, apparently, that there is. I have never read it. I've never seen it, actually. But um, he used to talk about it uh, in terms of, uh, the, apparently, he included in this book about American art a lot of ethnicities, a lot of Americans who came from other places. And he said, if you look at you know, the expanse of American art, you can see these people who came from other places in the world all have developed a sense of America through their art, America through their painting and through their sculpture. This, uh, this, they, they transmitted the American, who Americans actually were instead of uh, their own, where they came from. So a pretty interesting concept. And I, you know, I've always wanted to get a hold of that book actually, but I think it's pretty difficult to get a hold of. But uh, I don't know if it's still in print or Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I know that he also had uh, a fairly big art collection uh, that he had amassed over the years. And I think he donated all of it to uh, a college in Los Angeles. 
they have a whole wing uh, devoted to his art collection. And he was interesting. He would he would always encourage people go out and buy a piece of art. You know, you'll 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 feel better for it. You know, it have right. you don't have to buy as much as I do, but go go buy a piece. You know, go buy something. Have have fun and, and appreciate it. He was very interested in that. He bought a Vincent Van Gogh etching when he was wow. ten years old or ten or eleven years old, and it was you know, everybody thought it was worth it, but it was just a you know a sketch thing, and they wanted thirty five dollars for it, and he only had five dollars, but he he said I'll pay you for it later. I'll pay you over time. He said it took him three and a half years to pay it back, but he did. He bought that was the first piece of art that he ever bought. He was also a purveyor of art. He would buy art for other people. And he bought 55,000 pieces of art for not only himself, but for other people. An amazing guy. I mean, he really was a very bright guy. He was a Yale graduate, too. Yeah, and he, he was from uh, St. Louis. Right. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And, I, and my father was from St. Louis. And I used to tease my father. I would say, you're from St. Louis. Why can't you be more like Vincent Price? Why? <laughs> And you can imagine the dirty look he'd give me. But uh, um, I, I also, uh, I never got to see him on stage, but Vincent Price uh, apparently did a lot of uh, plays. He did a one-man show as uh, Oscar Wilde, which... Uh, was oh, he did that for a long time, actually, yes. Right. Yeah, yep. yeah. And he was amazing at that. I mean, the man had incredible recall, and... You know, Oscar Wilde, like the Wilde poetry is difficult, I think, personally, to memorize. And yet he used to you know, spout that off on stage at 100 miles an hour. It was just amazing what that man, uh, you know, he was a very, very bright guy, incredible guy. And also, you know, he could go from doing uh, Oscar Wilde to Gilligan's Island or, or the Brady Bunch. Yes. <laughs> you know, or the Muppets. <laughs> That, yeah. I mean, and seemed personal. to love it all, you know. He was this guy who was never bitter about anything. That he, you know, it used to be said of him that he would do anything because he did a lot of this goofy stuff on on television. But he said, "I just, I love doing it." I mean, he was on the Thriller album. I mean, you oh, remember yeah. that? Yeah, and, and I, uh, Edward Scissorhands. He he had the very touching role as the uh, scientist uh, in, right. in that movie. Yeah. Well, he loved to work. And one of my favorite quotes from Vincent Price was someone asked him, did it ever bother you to be typecast? And he said, I'd rather be typecast than unemployed. And <laughs> right. I, that says it all. You know, that, that was right. his whole philosophy. Just keep working, whether it's the Brady Bunch or Oscar Wilde, <laughs> you know, just keep doing yeah. it. <laughs> or Batman. I, I know we have a number of his movies, as you mentioned, coming up. I think it wasn't it. Um, Theater of Blood. That oh. was his favorite film, because a lot of it was because he got to kill critics. He said in it. Yeah, he said, and he a, got you know, to. I think he got to do a, a little bit of Shakespeare in in that movie too. That's true. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. he he would kill the critics in ways that he had seen in Shakespearean plays. I think that's what it was, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Theater of, of Blood. Diana Rigg was was in that one too, as as Diana his little Rigg. sidekick. Yeah. Wow. God, uh, she was a she was a beautiful woman. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was something special. And she was another versatile actress who could do, you know, uh, the Avengers uh, and then do, right. you know, a classic piece of, of uh, theater. Um, she, she was uh, one of a kind. Um, actually, Christopher Lee's birthday, we're, we're not celebrating it, but uh, Christopher Lee's birthday is the same day as Vincent. <laughs> we're not celebrating it. <laughs> we're not. We're going to ignore it. <laughs> Maybe Just next John year. Wayne. Right. And Vincent Price. But maybe next year, Christopher Lee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, happy birthday to them all. <laughs> and uh, finally, Anna Mae Wong. Her birthday uh, is on, on the 17th. What? Right. She was a fascinating character. That's, that's a Hollywood story right there. It sure is. I mean, as a little girl, apparently, she used to, they used to make, she grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, I think she was third generation. Um, I mean, she was American through and through, but um, not that second generation people aren't American as well, but I just, she'd been here a long time and our family had been here a long time. But she used to, as a child, go down, her, her parents hated it. They were dead set against her getting involved in the movie business. But she used to go down when they were making movies in, Chinatown, which they did quite frequently. And she would, you know, get her way, move her way into the, yeah, skip school to go see it. And then she said, I knew I would get a, a licking or I knew I'd get whipped for it, but I, I didn't care. I was amazed by all these guys that even the photographers and the producers and the directors and these wonderful actors in grease paint. You know? So she became fascinated at a very young age with the movie business and decided that she wanted to be an actress. Now, of course, this is at a time when, you know, usually Caucasians were the ones to play, at least leading roles, to play Asians in movies. Um, Paul Muni, remember in The Good Earth? Um, yeah. I mean, there were two Caucasians that played Charlie Chan. I, th and, I think uh, uh, Edward G. Robinson may have played uh, some Asian I think you're characters. right. Yeah. Right. But, you know, also Mary Pickford, I think, played um, Madam Butterfly. I mean, that's how, I mean, it was only Caucasians, literally, that played uh, Asian roles in movies for a very long time. You would, until... you would only see Asians as extras if they were filming a movie that took place in Chinatown or something. That's true. And, you know, speaking of Charlie Chan, his number one son and his number two, they, all, they were played by actual yeah. uh, Asians in, uh, in the movies. But um, she was the first one to come along and demand you know, certain roles or that she wasn't going to take a lesser role. I mean, she lost parts as a result of demanding that she was going to, I think the good earth was one of them. Yeah. I mean, she wanted that role that, um, that Rainier eventually ended up with yep. and they offered her a secondary role as, uh, you know, as one, as a, a character that was a bad, you know, a bad girl. So that was the one that they were going to give her. And she said, that's the only bad, girl in the movie and I'm going to have to play it. The only Asian you have to play in the movie. So uh, she turned that down and, and didn't do it. So she was pretty principled that way. And she was very, I mean, very open about the racism that she had encountered in, in the movies. And, you know, she said something that was, you know, very sad, but very funny at the same time. She said, all of these roles, I either played these roles where I was the submissive um, oriental, you know, the demure, submissive oriental, or I would play, you know, uh, 
uh, this with a dragon lady, and the, the evil dragon lady. She said, either one, by the time the credits rolled, the final credits rolled, I'd be dead. I mean, they wouldn't know what to do with me. So, and you know something, you think, oh, that's, that's an exaggeration. But you look at her movies, it's true. It's absolutely true. And she claims it because they didn't really know what to do with our, my character. And so that's you know what happened. But she, uh, she deserves a lot of credit because she opened a lot of doors in Hollywood. And largely, it was because of her insistence on playing you know, uh, certain roles and saying she wouldn't play secondary roles. That's the role that she should play because she was an authentic Asian actress. And I think she opened a lot of doors. There was, uh, I, I wrote a, a short piece about Anime Wong for the Film Detectives website last year. And uh, as I was researching the story, I found one little tidbit that fascinated me. Uh, it was in an old newspaper from the uh, early 40s. And she had left America for a while and she was doing plays in Europe, London, and, and she was a big success. She was doing very well. She came back to America. Yes. She came back because one of the studios promised her uh, sort of a, a Mr. Moto type series where she would be a female detective action star. Um, and she thought, well, that would be good. I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, Mr. Moto was played by Peter Laurie. <laughs> okay. And yeah, again, right. she, she thought, go. well, if you want to have a real, a real Asian sleuth, you know, solving crimes in Chinatown, um, that I, I would love to do it. And, and as a female- Sounds like a great premise, doesn't it? Doesn't it would sound be like great, a great now. Premise? You yeah. could do it now. Yeah. It would be beautiful. Yeah. And she came back uh, and then the series never got off the ground. Um, I think it aired. I think that one, series aired. I think they did, uh, it was gonna be a movie, a movie series. Um, like like Mr. Moto, it was going to be uh, you know every few months they were going to release like and and a seventy minute feature. It was a, a title like The Adventures of Lucy Sue or I can't well, remember what it was. It, but she did do uh, a TV series uh, later on in the fifties that was very short lived. But she was yeah. a detective in this one too. It was yeah, less than only one season. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And I think the film detective should get on this because I don't believe anyone has ever found the film or anyone has found any evidence of this series anywhere yeah, a, a lot of that early television is you know gone gone with the wind yeah nobody, nobody well, knows where it is or it's burned up yeah but right. uh she was great she was uh also you know another one who um when when it seemed like the movies were were not calling she went into the new medium of film. I mean, uh, television, you know, she, she went into television and worked a, a fairly good amount in television in the 50s. Yeah, it would be sometimes she wouldn't work for a while, but then she would pop back up in something. So I think it was enough to sustain her. But uh, I mean, she never worked as much as probably she should have worked. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, there, there was a point in, in her career where things got so bad that she ended up just uh, appearing at hotels, doing like a little one woman show where she would, you know, sing a couple of songs and put on, literally put on, you know, like a geisha girl outfit and and <laughs> serve tea to the customers between 
between acts you know it really yeah, it reached, yeah. it reached that low to point. make a living yeah right just to make you know a in, in in the middle of nebraska you know anime Wong would be appearing at you know the uh the, the hilton you know local um, yeah, yeah and and uh but then, you know she she would always find a way back and, and appear in some uh europe was always uh, welcoming to her she could always return yeah. to europe and do something but here in the states she couldn't get it going well, certainly, uh, certainly a groundbreaker. And I think that's why she's on that women's series of you know, the, the Mint, the U.S. Mint is doing quarters with women. Oh, them. yeah. And I, I'm ashamed to say that I can't remember the title of what women in the quarters for women or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. But she's one of those women that's on uh, that on the new quarters. So if you'd like to get a hold of an anime one quarter, get a hold of the U.S. Mint. Well, on, the 17, on the 17th, we'll be showing two of her movies. Uh, one of them is a Sherlock Holmes movie, A Study in Scarlet. Um, and I'm I think she plays another one of her mysterious dragon lady type characters in that one. Um, <laughs> According to her, there are only we're, two different kinds of roles. We're, but, you know, we're also showing one of her later films from, from the uh, World War II era called uh, Lady from Chungking, which is a little different. She plays... Uh, I think she plays a school teacher who infiltrates enemy lines. Uh, I believe during it's, the Chinese invasion. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, during the Japanese invasion of China. Exactly. <clears throat> right. And and uh, she she's a school teacher who becomes a spy, uh, and that that uh, was a good one. That, and that was one of the last ones she did for a while. After that. Uh, they were making promises that uh, they didn't keep, and I couldn't figure I, I out believe why she died. they didn't keep the promises. You she know? died fairly young, I believe. She did. did she yeah. died in her. She died in her fifties, I think. Maybe yeah. her late fifties somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, from what I read, I think she was drinking a lot. Um, yeah. And uh, li living by herself, uh, sometimes she had enough money. She was never buy. married. Apparently, she was never married. Uh, no, I, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. And apparently she was either going to star in Flower Drum Song. They had a big role uh, for uh, Flower, Dr Flower Drum Song. She was too sick in order to play it. Yeah. Right. And she was ready yeah, to do it. I do it. remember and, that. And she yeah. died. Um, right. But uh, yeah, Anime Wong. And also, you got to admit, when when she did some of those photo shoots for uh, Vanity Fair at the time um, and some of the movie star magazines, the woman knew how to strike a pose, uh, just magnetic in front of a camera. Um, it, uh, they would they would dress her up in in these uh, really outlandish, you know, 1930s Art Deco type costumes, you know, and and she could really as pose. they were wont to do yes oh man yeah, yeah. she yeah. she knew how to how to catch the light she really knew how to do it and the photographers she worked with who i'm sure were a lot of german expats who who had left europe right. and were working here uh they just thought she was the when perfect. is the lady from Chen, excuse me when is the lady from chun king going to be on do we have uh, it the scheduled 17th. and it's may 17th. 17th of next month oh 17th yeah. of may right yeah, okay. Tuesday. Something of this month, right? <laughs> and yeah, also, right. Uh, uh, you know, the film detective also has uh, the uh, the on-demand 
service. So I think, I, I believe after it plays on the 17th, uh, you, you can look for it uh, on demand on the film yeah. detective. Um, and, I'm gonna and, watch the movie. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to, to see what kind of career she might have had. Uh, right. You know, it's not a dragon lady. It's not uh, a submissive <laughs> little character. You know, she's she's sort of that action type of character. But does she live until the final credits roll? Ah, <laughs> we shall see. I I, uh, I believe she does, but she doesn't come to a good end. Oh, don't don't give it up now. Don't you know? <laughs> don't spoil it. It all's <laughs> fair in love and war. Right. Um, well, we've been uh, yakking for about forty-five minutes. Uh, I'm going to pick one day out of the month and recommend it. Uh, something I thought would be fun to do. The twenty-second, we're showing. Two movies that I'll, I'll recommend to uh, the viewers. One of them uh, is Palooka. Boxing and dames never mix. That seems to be the message of Palooka, a movie based on the popular Joe Palooka comic strip of the 1930s. Jimmy Durante stars as Nobby Walsh, the trainer of boxing contender Joe Palooka. Nobby guides Joe to the top, but can a simple-minded boxer survive life in the fast lane? Stuart Irwin stars as Joe, and fresh from his role in King Kong, Robert Armstrong stars as Joe's father, Pete Palooka. You'll also see a trio of beautiful actresses, Thelma Todd, Mary Carlisle, and the Mexican spitfire herself, Lupe Velez. As usual, Lupe steals every scene she's in. From 1934, directed by Benjamin Stoloff, here's Palooka. Which stars Jimmy Durante. Uh, it's based on the old Joe Palooka cartoon strip. I don't know if anybody uh, is familiar with that one, but it was a comedy uh, about a boxer. I, am. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, it makes sense and, that and, you would like that. You write books about boxers. Well, sure. Uh, but Palooka, Palooka also stars uh, the old Mexican Spitfire. Uh, um, oh. That is, um, oh, I can't believe I can't remember her name. Oh, I can't believe I can't remember her name. Valles, right? Um, yeah. Lupe Valles. <laughs> Lupe Valles, right. And Lupe steals the show. She even steals the show from, from uh, Jimmy Durante. Um, and so I'd recommend that one. And on the same day, we're also showing uh, one of Buster Keaton's talkies, uh, Parlor, Bedroom, and Bath. Um, now, a lot of people don't like Buster's talkies. They think uh, they're inferior to his silent movies. And they're probably right. But I think that's a pretty good one. And also, uh, because the talkies were such a novelty, um, I think a lot of people don't realize that his talkies were big money makers. Uh, so his forgettable talkies uh, made a lot more money for the studio than all the silent films that uh, we've grown to treasure over the years. His talkies were big hits uh, for a few go. years back in the early 30s. Um, and if you're going to watch one Buster Keaton talkie, uh, I'd recommend that one. So that's that's my recommend my recommendation for the month of May. Well, good for you. Next time, maybe I'll have a recommendation for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's been another fun afternoon talking with my friend Dana Hersey. I'm Don Stradley. 
Dana, if you would, please sign us out. For the film detective and Don, I'm Dana Hersey. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dana. See you next month. Thanks, pal.